Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. I always like to get a feel for who's in the audience before I start, so that I know what you'll be interested in and what not. So please put your hand up if you consider yourself a biologist. Two. And two at the back. Four, okay. That's not bad. I'm, I Notice I didn't put my hand up then, yeah? So I'm not a biologist in any way. Hands up if you're an astrobiologist. No, they've gone down again, okay. So we're, I'm a little bit on safer ground there. Um, <clears throat> it is completely true that I know nothing about biology or astrobiology, or I didn't before I started this project. Um, the reason I got involved was that I... Um, I was in a, a scheme called the Nesta Crucible. And Nesta is the uh, National Endowment for Science, Technology, and the Arts. And they sponsor research that no one else would sponsor. And they ran what they call a crucible, which is like a melting pot. And they asked for volunteer researchers from all around the country to come together for three weekends over a period of about two years and we were from all different disciplines, and they threw us all in a melting pot and took us into country retreats where we weren't allowed to use phones and things. And the idea was to see what would happen with multidisciplinary collaboration when we get researchers from very different fields together to work on projects. And at the end of those three weekends away, uh, we were allowed to bid for funding to take our ideas forwards. And there's me. So... <coughs> Uh, I got talking to this guy, Ol, um, Oliver de Peyer, and he is a biologist. Uh, he works for the National Institute of Medical Research, and he had a passion for making robots do his work for him. We'll see it in a minute. And we were also talking to Mel, Mel Melanie Grant, who is a proper biologist, um, and she had some ideas about how, how they wanted to do biology using robots. And Ol's day job is that he struggles with this robot, which puts things in, it pipettes things into little containers and does the reactions and samples and does it supposedly automatically. And he used to entertain us with stories of how the robot kind of moves the wrong way and throws all the pipettes on the floor and he leaves it going overnight and comes back in the morning and the robot's destroyed his lab. He, wanted, he said that was a crazy way of doing biology and he wanted to miniaturize it and he wanted to, do, um, to, to, to automate but miniaturize. And he'd also done a, an internship in NASA with some astrobiologists, so he had a sort of passion for astrobiology. And so we, Mel and I got sucked into that passion, and we agreed to help him achieve his goal. And his goal focuses around this project, which uh, there's all there, and that's, that's our UK team, and that's Lynn Rothschild. She's a NASA astrobiologist. Now, she does that for a day job, and he had his internship with her. And the, the NASA people want to understand about the biology of other planets and about our own planets but outside the atmosphere. And um, so Lynn and Rocco and her, their PhD student, Diana, were working on astrobiology as part of their day job. All Mel and I were 
randomly thinking about having a go in his gar garage. Uh, and we bid to, to Nesta to get the funding to try and take this forward. And the idea was that we would build a small-scale robotic-type biology experiment and fly it in the UK on a balloon. And that balloon would then take it very, very high, and we could do some biology in the sky. And the reason for that is the NASA people, they um, send rockets up, they capture samples of air from the stratosphere, bring those samples back down to Earth, and then they analyze those samples to see what biology they've got in them. And Ol was worried about that approach because he said that if you find some bacteria, and we're only talking about microorganisms, not kind of birds or animals or anything, but we're talking about microorganisms. If you find them in that sample, how can you be confident that they haven't come from contamination on the land because you've sent this rocket up and brought the thing down and it could have been contaminated. So all wanted to do the actual testing in the sky, so there was no argument that, that it had been contaminated. And, whilst, and we bid to Nesta for our funding to do this on balloons, and we got our funding. We got a small amount of funding to build a tiny little proof-of-concept robot to do some biology and launch it on a balloon and see how high it would go and see what we could find up there. And as uh, was hinted at in the introduction, there is a real-life um, driver behind this, because if biology can survive in the stratosphere, it can survive under very, very high levels of UV light. And UV light causes mutations in the DNA, and it's what causes cancer. Skin cancer is too much UV light. So if we can find microorganisms that can survive at that altitude and not get destroyed by the UV light, we can learn from their mechanisms for protection and maybe we could develop cures for cancer or preventions for cancer down on the Earth. So that was the kind of driving force. If anyone ever asked us what we were doing, we were trying to search for the cure for cancer. Um, and so... And so Nesta bought that line and said, okay, here's a little bit of money, go and find the cure for cancer. Right. Um, but then when we got that money, Lynn got very excited because she said, well, we're doing a project in the desert with rockets. Why don't you come along? So what we did was, I mean, we couldn't quite miss that opportunity. Not every day NASA says, why don't you come and launch rockets with us? Um, unfortunately, the money we'd got only funded one balloon in the UK. So we needed to invent some more money. And that's where these two guys come in. They were two high school students. So we also managed to convince Nesta that we could run a kind of public engagement schools competition to take some school students with us to launch rockets with NASA. And that would be a wonderful high-profile opportunity for them to, get to, to train some students and to get, raise their profile. And they fell for that one as well. So, so we got double money, so long as we took two kids with us. Seemed like a fair deal. Uh, we ran a national competition where kids from all over the country applied to us to get the chance to win these two places, and we got down to final list of six, and then we had a kind of X-Factor session in London where we made them all explain why they should be the ones that got chosen, and we ended up choosing Joe and Rainbow. And they came with us to the States to, to work on the project. Just to put it in a little bit of context, that's 
That's the air above us, and we are down quite near sea level at the moment. And the stratosphere is everything from, I can't quite see it on there. It's, uh, well, it's from about six kilometers to about 55. And we were going for, um, so you can see that uh, weather balloons get up to about that height, and above there, there's not a lot. That's where it that's where it changes. And we were going for way above where the balloons were. We were into rocket territory. And it was going to be about, I think we were going for 100 kilometers, something like that. So we were, was it 100 kilometers? Sounds quite high, doesn't it? But I think, I think it was. We were definitely going outside the stratosphere just. Um, and to do that, we needed some serious, uh, some serious kit. So we, we went along to NASA. It's, this is in San Francisco. No, well, San Francisco and L.A. Uh, they have a, a NASA base, NASA Ames. And they, we, we went to the NASA Museum just outside the base and played with the suits and looked at some real moon rock. Uh, inside the museum, there was this model of a wind tunnel, which is the massive wind tunnel that NASA have used to develop their rockets and flying systems in. But then we were allowed to go through security. It took about six weeks and lots of uh, State Department faxes to get permission to get inside the uh, NASA base proper and see the same wind tunnel for real in its huge size. So we got inside. And in fact, the NASA buildings, the, the architect and civil engineer in me was taking photos of buildings. The outside of their buildings is made from concrete that's got this effect that makes it look like the moon on it. The whole side of the building is just concrete with these bubble holes in to make it look like the moon. Um, and we, we visited Lynn's uh, lab where they do these experiments. Uh, we got to see how they do this thing for real, where they take the samples and how they test them in a clean room, which is very highly engineered to be completely clean and supposedly free of contaminants. And then we went from there to the, to the desert. Um, now, we, have to, we had to do this in the desert, because what goes up must come down, and it's not allowed to come down on anyone's head. So you have to do it a long way from everyone else. And we can't do it in the California desert because the California legal system doesn't allow you to set off very big rockets. However, in Nevada, you can do what you like. Uh, and so there's no laws about that. So we went to the Nevada desert, the Black Rock Desert, and we, on the way, we met these guys. Now, these guys, the Mavericks, are a group of rocket hobbyists. And they have been launching rockets. And they can, you can buy rockets from a rocket hobby shop, and they're about that big. And they get a bit carried away in America, I think. And they, they just kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger. They go away for weekends to the desert and launch things. And sometimes it goes wrong and plummets through the car windscreen. Their favorite trick is launching barrels of beer on rockets. Because when it goes up really, really high, it's very, very cold and it chills the beer. So how to get cold beer in the desert is <laughs> to send it up on a barrel. And they also do uh, temp in bowling, 
where they set, they've got these kind of huge um, wooden bowling pins that they set up 20 kilometers that way, and then they launch mortars at them to try and knock them over. So that's their kind of idea of fun. But they put in a lot of effort into some big, serious rocketry, and they kind of felt that they should be getting a bit more out of it than cold beer. So they set up a, a STEM educational scheme where uh, high school kids could get involved and learn how to build rockets and how to do things like design the rocket, set it off, and by learning their science, technology, engineering, and math skills on a real live project was a really good way to motivate them. So we called in at these guys because these guys had said, well, you can put your biology on our rockets. So we weren't at, whilst we were working with the NASA astrobiologists, NASA weren't launching the rockets because they're very expensive. If you want to hire NASA to launch a rocket for you, it costs quite a lot. If you want to get these guys to do it, they'll do it for free. So we got these guys to launch the rockets, and we went to visit them in their garage where they, um, they make their own rocket fuel in a centrifuge. They've got things like that on the wall. Um, they told us a story where they had to stop off at the highway service station on the way to launch rockets. They parked the truck outside, went into the toilets, came back out, and the American Secret Service were all over them because someone had seen one of these and phoned them up and said it was something dodgy. So they have a lot of fun. But that was the first time we got to see whether what we designed would actually fit on the rocket because they told us roughly what their rockets looked like and we'd had to do a lot of work early on and planning and construction and then that's the chance we got to see. We're, luckily, it did just fit, but the original aim was to put NASA's experiment and our experiment on the same rocket so that we could validate each other's experiments. So if they went home and captured a sample, brought it back to Earth and found some bacteria in it, and we'd found bacteria up there at, on the same rocket, you could be pretty sure the bacteria they found wasn't contamination. It was true, and they can do a lot more with it on the ground. And similarly, if they found something and we did or we didn't and they did, we could cross-reference each other. It wasn't till that day when we realized that our, rock, our equipment just fit in the rocket, but there was no room left for NASA stuff. And therefore, we had to separate off. So we, we ended up going on separate rockets, which means the, pl the plus side was a bit disappointing, but the plus side is we get to see two rockets go off today and not just one. Um, so we left them behind. We went out to the desert. We drove all the way out to the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. We arrived there at night time. It looked like that. Uh, went to sleep and woke up in the morning and that's what greeted us. And that was an amazing sort of shock for me when you open the curtains in the morning and you see that. It's, um, it's like an old salt lake bed. It's where they do land speed testing and things like that. It's about 20 miles across. And that was, was going to be our home for the next 10 days. It, five days on the playa. We were out there for 10. It's called the playa, uh, Spanish for sand or beach rather, but it's, it's dead flat. The ground looks like that. It's kind of cracked mud. There's no, hardly any life at all, no insects, no anything because there's no food because it's all just cracked mud on a dead flat floor. And that was our home for five days. We got one toilet, one gas ring, uh, limited food and water, everything we had we just took on with us. Um, it's a protected natural area, so everything you take on has to be removed as well. 
So we had to collect all the rubbish and you can't leave any sign of you being there. There was no electricity, no mobile phone signals. Uh, it, was about, it was more than 40 degrees centigrade every day. Um, quite fun. And because our original experiment, had, our original idea had been about balloons, all our equipment was really geared up about balloons. And we wanted to use this as a test proof of concept for our balloon idea. So before we did the rockets, we did a balloon experiment because we wanted to dry run the radio communications and the equipment and, the, and everything. We wanted to dry run it. Uh, and in that context, we were following in the footsteps of many pioneers of early science where people used balloons to get up into the sky and do science and do physics and do biology. And um, interestingly, we've got Auguste Picard, I think it's that one, who, um, who was one of the very early, 1933 it says there, very early pioneers of balloon flights for scientific experimentation. And, uh, when I, uh, and a year after I got back from this project, I was actually asked to be a scientific advisor on a BBC opera called Picard in Space about his journey on balloons for scientific discovery. So I've, I've been a, I'm on the uh, program for an opera. I never thought that would come out of this project. Um, but we um, made this. This is our experiment. We called it HAB, High Altitude Ballooning. Um, the, I'll, I'll say the reason for that in a second. But it's yes, it's cobbled together. I think if I'd put that on the flyer, you would maybe not have come today. Um, this bit here is a computer, a very small one. Those are some relays that control the electronics. That is everything else. It's got plastic syringes and shape memory alloy springs. That's a special metal. When you put electricity through it, it shrinks. So if you've got a spring, you put electricity through, it shrinks and it pulls. So you can pull the plunger out with that. And, and we put them in pairs like muscles. So one can pull it outwards and one can push it back in. Um, and the idea of the system, so the biologists may appreciate this, uh, we sucked air in from outside. We then uh, put it into a sterile chamber and bubbled it through some detergent. And the detergent apparently breaks open any bacteria or any cells that you've got. The, the detergent will break the cell wall and break it and expose the DNA. We then passed it through another tube into an incubator which heated to 37 degrees, which is blood temperature. And that then, um, we mixed it with something called Twist DX, which is a special enzyme which amplifies DNA. So if you've got a little bit of DNA in a sample, you put Twist DX in and it kind of multiplies it and amplifies it so there's more of it about. I think that's what they do in the TV CSI programs when they take a tiny sample from some slight, you know, crime scene thing, and they can amplify it to see what the DNA was. Once it's done that, we then dyed it with something called Pico Green, which binds to DNA. So it's, it's like a dye, but it only dyes DNA. And then we, um, what, what Pico Green does, as well as binding to DNA, it fluoresces. So if you shine it with a certain wavelength turquoise light, it glows a bit more green. So when we did that, we had an LED that shines it with the turquoise light, and we had a light sensor that sensed the green light. So we throw turquoise on it, 
And if it glows green, there must be DNA there because the pico green is bound to the DNA. So that was our experiment, and that's all in there. You can see the backside of it there. That's the, um, that's the thing with the LED. So the pipes come in, one pipe goes out, and it's got the LED in the sensor. So what we're doing is we're, we're washing it with detergent, we're heating it to 37 degrees, we're mixing it with an enzyme, we're mixing it with a dye, and then we're shining one wavelength light on it and measuring to see if we get any more back. That's the experiment in a nutshell. Uh, quite com it sounds quite complicated, and it was. It sounds quite complicated to build it in a motor home with no electricity. It was. And it sounds quite complicated to then send it into the stratosphere. It was. <coughs> but we gave it a go. So we were up all night the night before the balloon launch, finishing it off. Back to the question of why I ever got involved. Um, I write computer programs as part of my research here. Uh, so I wrote the computer software on, for that that drove the relays that pulled all the springs and made all the things work. I also do a lot of uh, structural analysis as part of my research. So I was making sure that this thing would survive the launch because on a rocket you can have Mac uh, you can have eight times the acceleration due to gravity, and we didn't want the thing to physically break. And I also do a lot of 3D printing and 3D modeling as part of my research into buildings, and this is just a bit smaller. But I, we originally had plans to 3D print some of this structure, because you, uh, you can make the structure very carefully shaped so that the LED would slot straight in and the syringes would slot straight in. You can make a very complicated shape quite strongly. But in the end, we didn't have time to 3D print that. So that's why I was involved. And why? <laughs> because I could is the real answer. Um, so rain, there's Rainbow and I holding the equipment. The top bit is our equipment completely, hence the Union Jack flag. And the bottom bit is the GPS tracking system so we don't lose it. And they're in separate. Uh, it's quite crazy. The, the rules about sending things up on a balloon is that you're not allowed to send up more than a certain amount of weight, and that's in case it falls down and hits someone on the head. So we weighed our bit, and then we weighed the GPS bit, and we just put them in two different boxes, and neither box was heavier than the limit, so up it went. Uh, so the GPS is the bottom, that's nothing to do with us, and the top bit is our experiment. They were completely separate and independent. And then we launched it. We filled a latex balloon full of helium and took the best part of two huge cylinders left over from the NASA store. And I have a video of its launch, but it's the, it really is the biggest anticlimax. So don't get your hopes up. Um, but there's its launch. Here we go. All right, there we go. Ah, sorry, there's, there's two of ours, and then the, bottom, the very bottom one was the GPS. Off it goes. That's not, I mean, that is an anticlimax, I agree. Um, it started life about 2.4 meters across on the ground, filled with helium. That's how much helium we put in. But of course, as it rises, the air, t air pressure is lower. We've put a fixed pressure in there. So as it goes up, it grows because the air pressure outside is less. And when it was, uh, it was going up at about 5 meters per second, and in the end, it went. It grew to 15 meters across. Started off at 2.4. It grew to 15 meters across. 
before the, uh, the latex balloon then bursts because it's just too, too big. And that's our uh, return system. So the idea is you just send it up. When the balloon bursts, it comes down again. Uh, got to about 30 kilometers up, so that's not bad. We were quite pleased with that. And uh, we were tracking it on the radio system. We were trying to track it on the radio system. And we got um, Stratofox is a company whose task is to follow and find things. And they were fabulous guys. If you're ever on the west coast of the USA and you want a balloon tracking, I can definitely recommend them. Uh, they get up-to-the-minute weather forecast data and particularly wind speeds at different heights, and then they back-calculate what the balloon's going to do. So if the wind's blowing that way, they work out how the balloon's going to rise up based on what gas we've put in. So they know how it's going to go up, and then when it's going to pop and when it's going to fall down, and it falls down on a parachute, so they roughly assume how it's going to fall down. And so they might say, well, if we launch it here, it's going to fall over there. So then they slide it all back again. They told us to drive that way, launch the balloon, and the idea being that it will then land back on the desert floor, not quite on top of, but quite near our caravan. And they, they did a really good job. They downloaded all the data from Google Maps for the whole entire area, and they got all this weather data and calculated it properly. When it went up, they, they say they've never lost one. They, no matter where it ends up, they'll find it because it's beeping GPS coordinates all the time. So they've had to climb mountains and go into ravines and to find it, but they always get it back. Uh, there was a time when it went up and the wind changed and it got a lot stronger at a certain height because they track the thing. Once they've made their prediction and then we launch it, they can follow where it's going. They thought it was going to Las Vegas 100 miles away, but it didn't. Uh, and it did actually land bang back on the desert floor after we've got it. So there's the, you can see there's the balloon, the latex balloon that's been, no, that's the latex balloon that's been popped, that's the parachute, and that's our thing safely back on the floor. We measured its temperature, it was eight degrees, because it had been so cold high up. That's eight degrees having come back down on a parachute and laid on the desert floor for a few minutes while we found it. So, I mean, it gets pretty cold up there. Um, and that's, that's kind of fine. Uh, we managed to get our equipment out. And the only tricky thing was that we had, um, we, we set up the system so that we had a radio link with it and we could live tell it what to do. So I got the laptop and I could say, start sampling the air, start heating the thing. We could kind of talk to it live and control it and tell it what to do. What we found with the balloon launch is that the radio communication system wasn't very good in that it was a bit directional. And if you're not quite underneath where the aerial is, you don't get a signal and you couldn't tell it to do things. And whilst we tried to kind of chase it across the countryside to be in the right place to get the signal, it wasn't possible. And so what we hadn't actually been able to do is tell it to start. So it went all the way up there, and then we were saying, right, so start now then, and it didn't hear us. And we, it, so we got no data apart from the fact that the live radio communication system is a bad idea, which meant that for our rocket flight, a 
a couple of days later, we had to re rebuild the entire system. And I was up all night with zero sleep writing the program to make it go through its series of steps automatically so that we could set it, say, start now on the ground and then let it go. And even if we couldn't get the radio contact, it would still sample. And it stored its uh, information on a tiny little hard disk in that computer. So that was the idea. And that, therefore, leaves, moves us on to our rocket version. We had a little bit of time, so we made our own rockets out of leftover kitchen roll. Um, the real rocket is that one. That was our rocket. NASA got the big one. There was a little bit of a one-upmanship about when we realized we couldn't both have the same rocket. So who gets the big one, us or NASA? Yeah. Well, NASA got the big one, so we got the small one. This is a small, well, relatively small, right? That's our rocket, and um, there's paper stuffed in the end to keep the dust out, but <coughs> when we were in the garage uh, with the Mavericks, they, they threw that at us and said, well, there you go, don't drop it. That is a rocket motor, and that is a very big one, and it's very expensive to, make, to buy, and they got fed up of paying all this money to buy their own, so they just sort of built, bought the, they clubbed together, bought the kit and the centrifuge and the raw materials, and they make their own. And now they can make their own as big as they want. So that is what they call a grain. It's based on aluminium powder with a bit of additives, but it burns very strong. And it's very carefully engineered because they, it kind of burns from the inside out and it needs to get a bit of air in, although it's got oxygen within it, and it needs to get the jet out so that it can thrust. Rocket motors are all given a letter depending on how powerful they are. So an A motor might be that big for a tiny little model rocket. And an A motor, for those of you who like numbers, is 2.5 Newton seconds impulse. So 2.5. It's not very big. And then a B motor is double the A. So that would be 5 Newton seconds. And each time you increase a letter, you double the impulse. That means... So it's a, log a logarithmic scale like that. So A is 2.5, B is double, C is double a B, which is four times an A, etc. In the UK, you get the biggest they get up to is K or L. Uh, I think there's been one N rocket ever, but uh, that made headline news, and that's you know launched on military sites, and it, it's a huge thing. K or L is the biggest in the um, in the UK. Uh, ours was made of five of these grains, and it was an O. So it was bigger than the biggest thing that's ever been launched in the UK. It's actually about what a cruise missile is, was ours. Um, 40,960 newton seconds, using five of those. And in fact, when we were in the garage, they said, uh, yeah, they made jokes about, oh, don't drop it. And it's relatively stable, it's not, unless you set fire to it, it's all right. Um, but they, do, they also promised that they'd throw one in the barbecue when we got out onto the desert. Um, so ours was an O, and we set it up, we launched. Um, I, my, my travel out there was sponsored by the Institute of Mathematics and its applications, so that's what that little logo is, if you wonder why. I took the photos to prove to them that I'd spent their money wisely. So the Institute of Mathematics and its applications gave me the money to travel. There's the logo, just to prove that it was 
through. Uh, and we launched that um, with our equipment on, and this time it was all set. So we run the script on the computer, and it all does its thing. Uh, so this is our moment of truth. That's the um, that's it, and we have to stand well back, obviously. Um, I think that's the button that sets it off, and and we're ready to go. So I've got a little video here of it going. So this is kind of a bit more exciting than the uh, than the balloon. And you can join in with the countdown if you like. <coughs> uh, this is taken from my camera looking through the car windscreen. I was on the laptop running the program and checking the radio link. So I kind of needed the power from the car battery. And um, so my camera was on the dashboard inside the car. They did actually say, if it looks like it's coming this way, you've got about two seconds to get behind the truck because that's the only thing. But you need to get behind the truck's engine block to stop it, otherwise you've had it. Um, they have had a few mishaps, which they told us about over the bonfire. But this is a video, so here we go. Feel free to count down. It's very tempting. Quite all right. So he holds on 10, and I give him permission to carry on. Nine, eight, seven, six, five. Okay, script running. Two, one. I just trimmed the video this morning to stop it at the right point. Um, that was my best steady cam work. We had a static camera on the ground, um, which was taking stills. So this thing should maybe do this. We had a slow motion version. See if it goes. It's thinking about it, I think. It's not that slow. All right, let's try it once more. There we go. That's the detonator, and then the motor, and then off it goes. And just because I like to watch it, this is all who got to push the button because it was his brainchild, so he pushed the button to make it go. And uh, I, I took this video of him doing it as well. I really, I really did thought it was going to go backwards over here. I thought it was going to fall backwards, but there we go. So, so there's our lunch. I've got some brilliant stills. Mel took some uh, stills with her camera, so she managed to take things like that, which show you how fast <coughs> it was. Uh, we'll see in a bit that it got to uh, Mac 1.4, so 1.4 times the speed of sound. Not bad, but we were hoping for a bit more. Um, that's the good bit, okay? Things looked like they were going fine from there. The bad bit is when it came down, okay? And because it came down, it went up like a rocket, yeah? It came down like a rocket. We'd had a few problems. We'd had, we, we hadn't had a few problems, let's say. The Mavericks had had a few issues getting the rocket ready for us. And the problem with these things is that we need 
air traffic control permission to launch because these things go higher than jumbo jets. So they had to clear the entire air traffic from around the desert such that we could launch the rockets. And they don't just do that for fun every day. So they gave us a two-hour window, and they said, within that two-hour window, you can call us up with 20 minutes' notice, and we'll clear the planes for you. Once that window's gone, that's it finished, because they have to track the planes when they leave South America, and they can't then tell them to go back and come the other way. So we had this two-hour window. The Mavericks were really rushing to get the launch to fit in that two-hour window. So they rushed and rushed and rushed and just about managed it, and we just launched within the two-hour window. However, in the rush, well, two things happened, really. What happened was it went up, and the parachute has a tiny little um, explosion detonator to blast it out of the rocket to then inflate and then come down. For some reason, <coughs> um, the, the rocket seems to have launched its parachute whilst it was still on the way up. Quite high, but whilst it was still on the way up. So it launched the parachute out and ripped it completely off because it, it, it was going Mach 1.4, you launch the parachute, it's gone. Therefore, that's not a problem. I mean, it's, it messes up the launch, but there is always a reserve chute. And you can see when it landed, that was the completely ripped and torn chute that had been launched at about Mach 1.4. The reserve chute, well, okay, what happened to the reserve chute? So then we looked inside the end, and that's where the reserve chute goes, but, but they'd forgotten to put it in. <coughs> so it went up like a dart and came down like a dart. In fact, the nose cone was buried into the desert floor, uh, which needed digging out and looked like that after we dug it out. Um, so, fine. <laughs> there wasn't a reserve chute. It's a bit of a shame. We had to struggle to get our uh, fabulous HAB equipment back out because it had been pl plunged into the desert floor. And what started off life looking like that, so there's our test fit in the garage to check that the nose cone fit on. That's our experiment that we've already seen. So note that there. And when we managed to get it out on the ground, it looked like that. <laughs> the, the batteries and the computer unit had pretty much acted like a piston. When it hit the ground, the batteries and the computer had just compressed the entire experiment with all these tubes and things. Now, you could hear me shouting script running when the launch went off. So we know that it was running, it was probably sampling, it was possibly even finding life in the stratosphere, but any sign of captured samples, because when we capture our sample, we kept it captured. It's all completely gone and ripped to shreds. The, um, the data and whether it found anything was all stored on the hard disk that was used as a piston to compress that. Come back to that. So there's our experiment. The Mavericks were very apologetic. Sorry. It went wrong. Sorry we didn't put the reserve chute on. And they said, oh, don't worry. Just come back next year and you can do it again. Because they do this every, every few months. But, of course, all our budget was now compressed into a tiny little ball. Uh, so we've still got an open invitation to go back and do it all again. Now, there wasn't a lot left for us to do there for, apart from sit and get some sun and do a bit of a post-mortem. Um, we, as, so as well as our 
experiment, there was all the GPS tracking system on the rockets, and that transmits its data live, and they, um, they save theirs onto a little SD card, just like your, your camera has a little memory card. The Mavericks were saying, yeah, this, some of the other guys were saying, this is always happening to us. So we store our data on a little SD card, and when it crashes into the floor, we can whip the card out and still read it. Well, they told us that after. All our data was on the hard disk, but their data was still live. So we got the data from the accelerometers that they've got on board. So there is our accelerometer data, which got up to about eight times the acceleration of gravity, 8G, at its peak. Um, now, if you integrate the acceleration, if you work out the area underneath the curve, you can find the velocity, the speed. So if we integrate that, we get the speed. So we know that it got up to about Mach 1.4. And if you integrate the velocity, the area under the velocity is the distance. So we can integrate again and find the distance, and we know that it got to about 8.5 kilometers. <coughs> now, we did think it a bit strange that it's showing that it went about two kilometers underground. And I, I dug it out. I know it wasn't two kilometers. Um, but when we match that with the barometer reading, so as well as the accelerometers, we've got barometers measuring the air pressure, we know that the barometer, the barometer reading agrees with about eight kilometers high, but it shows a much more gentle slope down. And the reason for that, we believe, was when it was coming down on its shredded parachute, we saw it spinning round and round and round like that. And that kind of puts a false acceleration on it, spinning around, and it thinks it's being accelerated. So it thought it was being accelerated by ac the accelerometers gave a higher reading than the actual true height. Uh, nice to see that the barometer came down to zero, at least. Um, the GPS data, you can also log in the vertical sensor's position, and we, <coughs> we log the GPS. That's our base camp. This is overlaid onto Google Earth. There's the base camp. That's the forward command post where a few people were, that's, uh, and that's where I was filming from and setting off the thing. Everyone else was way back there. That's the launch pad. It went straight up, and then we lost GPS. As it was spinning uncontrollably, they lost the transmission on the GPS there. So we don't know, because it was coming down pretty fast. It was flat. Uh, so that was the end of our experiment. We, also, we did spend a bit of time. We were committed to five days because we were supposed to be there for the other tests. So we played around with cyanoprinting a bit. We had uh, what some of the biologist dyes that we'd got uh, were, is a very early form of photography. You expose it to the light and it burns onto the cyanoprint. So we played around making some art installations. <coughs> we also discovered a uh, the desert is a, a dark sky zone one of the world's darkest places because it's way away from any city. There's no light source. It's one of the dark sky zones. So we played around with long exposure photography, took some brilliant photos of the stars at night on long exposure. We also played with our torches. <coughs> and I invented gummy bear art, which is that if you take a torch and sellotape a, a gummy bear sweet over the lens, it colors the light. And then if you put the camera on long exposure, you can write your name like a sparkler in the light with different colored gummy bears. 
So we, we did that. I can write my name. Uh, we all stood next to each other and wrote the name of our sponsor. And, <coughs> and then we got quite ambitious. I think I was the red one that <coughs> oh, told you. So. <coughs> Sorry, whilst I cough, I'll show you what happens when you throw one of those grains into the barbecue. It's relatively safe unless it's all confined and jetting it's thrust out one side. Um, we did do some real work too because we were interested in the contamination issue with NASA's flight. So our students had been uh, tasked with uh, uh, testing the entire player for cont biological contaminants in the air and in the soil, and they took samples. They grew those samples on agar plates and uh, measured the sizes to work out the contamination on the player because part of NASA's argument is that it's a sterile environment. So when they bring their samples down on the rockets, it's sterile anyway. Um, and we did some, uh, some tests. So the students did a, quite an interesting work. We, uh, I don't think it ever got published because we, we, we didn't quite get enough data. But you could see that the number of um, <coughs> colony-forming units, bacterias, uh, on each day, and they measured it every, we made them measure it every few hours throughout the day to see. So it dipped, uh, it dipped down during the middle of the day, I think, because the sun... Uh, sterilizes and bleaches the air. Uh, they took all sorts of measurements. We've got, when we arrived on the desert, there weren't that many, and of course, even just us living there, they, they walked quite a way to take the samples, but even us just living there contaminated the, the air. 